The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. The U.S. is the largest, fastest-growing wireless market in the world. And we have found over time that being in that ecosystem of a lot of growth and seeing long-term secular tailwinds of that growth, that that best positions us for long-term growth, ultimately, to the shareholders. That's Jay Brown, CEO of Crown Castle, as he discusses the deliberate positioning of communications infrastructure giant Crown Castle in the US, where the business has a remarkable track record of successes and is positioned to continue in line with the country's explosion of data and connectivity needs. Welcome to episode 13 of In The Know. In this episode, Jay talks with Magellan's chairman and chief investment officer, Hamish Douglas, about the evolution of this extraordinary business, which delivers ever-expanding 4 and 5G data networks to customers across the United States. We'll hear about a business model which Jay Brown describes as one of the best business models he's ever seen, and how, through asset acquisition and leaseback, the company provides win-win solutions for operators, customers and shareholders alike. Now, from macro communications towers to small cell networks, we'll find out how Crown Castle continues to further penetrate the American market and its insatiable appetite for all things data and connectivity. We start with some words of welcome and a milestone mark from Hamish. Welcome. This is our one-year anniversary of Magellan In The Know podcast. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Jay Brown. Jay is the Chief Executive Officer of a business that some of you may not have heard of. It's a business called Crown Castle that is one of the major operators of macro towers and now building out small cell networks for 4G and 5G data networks in the United States. I think given what's happening in the world and with the explosion of data and the importance of infrastructure, I hope you're going to find this incredibly interesting. So first of all, Jay, welcome to Magellan In The Know. That's great to be here. Thank you for the invite. It is an absolute pleasure, Jay. Maybe you could just give a little bit of background to our listeners on yourself and how you became the Chief Executive Officer of Crown Castle. Sure. Well, I've been at Crown for 22 years. I had two opportunities 22 years ago. One of them was at this startup company in wireless when there was about 25% of the U.S. population that used a cell phone. And it was still thought to be this novel device that maybe one day a lot of people would want to use. And uh, my other opportunity was to go to Enron. And I made a good choice and ended up at Crown Castle and was on the finance side, the corporate development side in the early days and helped us acquire some of the early assets that we bought. And then I was CFO for eight years. And then I moved into the CEO role uh, five years ago, a little over five years ago. So it's been an interesting last five years and certainly excited about where we are in in terms of the deployment of 5G now. So I've been through at Crown Castle each of the stages as the world has gone from 1G to 2G to 3G to 4G 
and now 5G. Jay, maybe a little bit of a history on the evolution of the macro tower business in the United States. And the economics weren't always great in the beginning. And, you know, you're developing a new business. We'll come and talk to you about the small cell business. But, you know, how did the Crown Castle macro tower business develop over time, given that you were really there through the evolution of much of the bringing together of the macro tower business? So in the early days, what we did was we saw an opportunity to share the assets, the towers, among multiple carriers. In the rest of the world, the wireless operators each built their own network of towers. And there was some sharing, but not a lot of sharing. And we saw an opportunity to go and acquire the assets, these early assets in the late 1990s and early 2000s to acquire the asset and then share them among multiple operators, thereby lowering their cost of deployment and providing an economic return to our shareholders by sharing the asset. So we approached the wireless carriers and tried to convince them to sell us their towers. And we were able to do that with predecessors to both Verizon and AT&T in 1999. And we acquired those assets and that became sort of our initial base of assets And then we've done multiple transactions since then, uh, going to the carriers with that same business model of they, we buy the asset from them, and then they lease back from us the asset or the space on the asset that they need for their own usage. And the need or the necessity of towers is driven by, as you referenced, the growth in data as people use these wireless devices, the wireless operators need to deploy equipment on towers and small cells in order to provide that service. So the company basically has ridden that growth to economic returns of providing a a shared asset at a lower cost than they could otherwise uh, build it themselves and then make good economic returns for our shareholders. And Jay, was it hard convincing the wireless network operators to sell their, their towers? You were obviously offering them a price at which, based on their rent, you were offering a price effectively, they wouldn't earn their cost of capital on an internal rent charge on that. So how hard was it to convince them to change their business models? Obviously, the dollars looked pretty attractive that you were offering. You know, it's interesting to think back to those days, because when we were acquiring the assets, we were paying a little over a 30 times multiple of EBITDA, between 32 and 35 times in most cases. So, And of course, interest rates were a little higher then, so those multiples look crazy. <laughs> yeah, interest rates were much higher, and our cost of debt was significantly higher than what it was at that startup phase. I don't think we had a single coupon of debt that was below 10% at the time. And so we had a high cost of debt, and most of the convincing of the operators was around the way we structured protections for them. So that if ultimately the business model failed, they had a path to get the assets back. And most of that has fallen away over the years as stability has grown and comfort has grown in the business. But in those early days, there was absolutely a view towards how would they unwind this uh, if we had overextended ourselves and the growth was not there. And then one of the things that we did early on to the model was obviously delivering for the carriers a safe space that they could count on being able to put equipment on our then towers and that uh, they had quiet enjoyment of the assets was key to that. The assets obviously aren't core to their business. It's steel, it's concrete, it's land. Uh, It doesn't drive their revenue stream, but it is obviously core to the eventual 
production of what drives their revenue stream. And so they had to ensure that they had quiet enjoyment around the assets. So in the early days, it was ensuring that we had the right operating procedures around the business that could protect the asset, whether it's fencing, security, lighting, those kind of things, that we were doing appropriate maintenance on the assets to protect the asset over the long term and uh, making sure that we had the right processes and procedures set up to give them comfort that we could take care of the assets appropriately and protect what was their underlying revenue stream. And as we went along further, and if you look at the business model today, we've come a long way because in those early days of buying the assets, our carrier customers had a much, much lower cost of capital than what we did. Their cost of capital was probably half of what ours was. And our view was that the path towards value creation for equity holders was going to be achieved by us ultimately achieving a lower cost of capital than that of our carrier customers. So as the lowest cost provider of the capital, we then share the asset across multiple operators. That drives our returns, but it also ensures that we can give a really low cost to the wireless carriers. And that has basically played out. Jay, maybe we can talk a little bit about the economics of the business because, you know, you started out paying 30 times, maybe you're getting a 3% return on your capital. You describe them as just some steel and some land. It sounds like, you know, a pretty boring business. You're at the tail end of what people don't want to own. But I think you would agree the US macro tower industry has turned out to be one of the best industries in the world. Do you think this is one of the great businesses when you took all the risk in the beginning and started with a very low return business or not? So how do you view it? Yeah, I think it's one of the best business models I've ever seen. There's a couple of elements. One element is this is a really a real estate model. So we own concrete, steel, land, and then we lease that land on very long-term contracts. So our tenants, the wireless operators, will initially sign up for 10 to 15 years with embedded escalators in those contracts. So we know what the rent is gonna be for the next 10 to 15 years from that customer. And then they'll go out and put their wireless equipment there. And one of the key elements of the business is there's not really interchangeability of locations. So once a carrier puts equipment at a site, they're making a significant investment of the electronics, running fiber to the site, linking up and designing the wireless network to provide coverage. And so that location becomes really unique and important to their network where they don't just want to move it around. It's not like office space where you can move to the next office building and set up in a similar way that you were in across the street. These sites are really unique in their design. And so any movement creates ripple effects in their network. So it's a real estate model at its core, but it has technological protection because of the design of the network. The other thing that's interesting about the business and why it's so good is because there's core organic growth. So in most real estate models, people try to get a fully utilized asset, 80% plus, 85% utilized when it comes out of the ground and, and it's got a good yield on it when it comes out of the ground. In our business, it's just the opposite. We go in with just one tenant initially when we build a new asset, and this is similar in small cells, which we can talk about in a minute. But these towers had the anchor tenant on them and we were assuming future growth. So we had a very low yield out of the gate, and we had all of the cost structure. So all of the operating costs were basically in there day one with that first tenant. And then as we add incremental tenants, like filling up an office building, we incur no additional operating costs or very little operating costs. So we take risk up front in terms of what the future lease up is gonna be on the asset. And that growth, 
is not inorganic. We don't have to put a lot of capital out in order to attract that tenant. The driver of our growth is the macro environment, the ecosystem of technology of going from 1G to 2G, 2 to 3, 3 to 4, now ultimately 5G. And that has been spurred from the consumer side by growth in minutes of use. The more we use our devices, the more network that is required for the wireless carriers, and therefore the more space on our assets that they're gonna lease. So it's a real estate model. It has all the stability that you typically find in a real estate model, but it has true organic growth. So if we choose not to invest in new things, we continue to see top line growth driven both from the escalators embedded in, the, in those existing contracts, and then also the growth that's driven by minutes of use. So on your question about barriers to entry or why is it such a good business, Part of it is the barriers to entry, and it has a really unique barrier to entry driven by the local municipalities, communities, cities, neighborhood associations, homeowners associations who do not want anybody to change the aesthetic of the place where they live. So once a tower is zoned and permitted and gets through that regulatory phase, at that point, they basically prevent others from building beside us. So each tower, in essence, becomes a monopoly because of the regime at the local level that doesn't want to see a lot of vertical eyesores, if you will. So that becomes a very high barrier to entry, and it drives future users and future customers onto the assets that are existing, thus minimizing, obviously it has great ESG implications in terms of minimizing the amount of resources that are put out, as well as protecting the aesthetic in the community and local regulations, zoning and permitting, basically help build that really high barrier to entry. So it's got great returns, lots of scale and leverage on the operating side where our operating costs today are, they've grown about two or 3% for the last 20 years on those assets. And we've been able to add additional tenants at no additional operating costs. So you get lots of operating scale, expansion of margins as a result of that and then a really high barrier to entry. And behind all of that is a strong secular growth that's driving top line growth that drops to the bottom line. And one thing that's unique compared to many other sort of infrastructure assets is it's a commercial negotiation. You're not regulated by the regulators here and you don't really have a concession deed. It's not like a toll road that after 25 years, you have to hand the concession back or pay a huge amount of money to extend it you've effectively got a perpetual right subject to extending your leases on the land. You own some land, but you tend to roll them 15 years out from their expiry. So it's sort of a perpetual, unregulated commercial infrastructure business. That's correct. It is completely a commercial, unregulated. uh, It's not like a utility, per se, where we have regulated rates. And our customers are obviously, that analogy to some degree could be taken too far. I mean, obviously we have very thoughtful, sophisticated customers on the other side of the equation. And our aim is to provide them a much lower cost offering than what they could do themselves. And over time that has been proven out. So they're probably paying uh, for residency on the asset if you fully load it for, for the cost of the capital and the operating costs. They're probably residing on our assets for about half of what it would cost them Uh, fully loaded if they were to use their own infrastructure. And then we're able to make a good return, even though we're offering sort of that price benefit, which is, it's a really, I would agree with your assessment, one of the best business models I've ever seen. It's also one of the best business models for a customer I've ever seen as well, to be able to receive the infrastructure at half or less of the cost of owning it themselves, 
increases the amount of capital that they have to run kind of their core business and expand the technological offering that they have to consumers and invest in innovation. So it's a win on both sides of the equation. Maybe we could move on because you've mentioned small cells and we'll talk about fiber as well. It's interesting your major competitor in the market, American Tower, has decided to stay out of the small cell business. And it's crucial you actually get into the business early. We'll talk about the barriers to entry. But in the long term, that may be very attractive that your major competitor is deciding to pursue a different strategy, which is predominantly expanding internationally, where you're staying locally. Do you think in the long term, it's going to work to your advantage that your major player is not investing early in the small cell business in the US? And then we'll come back to talk a bit more about small cells. You know, I think big picture, it's a good stage setting for how we think about uh, returns on capital and how we think about risk in the business. One of the first things that I would say of, you know, why are we focused so much on the U.S. business, which drives not only our interest in U.S. towers and has kept us away from investing in emerging markets around the world, and then leads to why we've invested in small cells in the U.S. The U.S. is the largest, fastest growing wireless market in the world. And we have found over time that being in that ecosystem of a lot of growth and seeing long-term secular tailwinds of that growth, that that best positions us for long-term growth ultimately to the shareholders. So part of the answer is it's a positioning and seeing where the U.S. sits relative to the world. The other part of it would be a risk equation. And I don't think those two things can be separated One of my observations in business is that people too flippantly say that with risk comes reward. And that's actually not been my work-life experience. Oftentimes, you can take a lot more risk and then the risk shows up and you don't get reward for that risk. And so we try to be really thoughtful in addition to thinking about growth. We're also trying to be thoughtful about what are the risks associated with the business. And part of the risk is the foreign currency risk that we would take. Obviously, we're a U.S.-based company. And so any capital we would go around the world with, we're not producing something that reprices every day. These are long-term contracts, and we would buy the asset day one. So we then forever own the currency exchange ratio risk there, buying in day one, and there's not a way to hedge that risk. So there is there's that risk that we think about, which we think the returns, particularly as we think about emerging markets, you've got to be really careful about your entry point into those markets uh, from a price standpoint. From a regulatory standpoint in those emerging markets, you have to be concerned not only at the country level, but also all the way down at the local level. And around the world in emerging markets, the barriers to entry just are not nearly as high as what they are in the U.S. And oftentimes in emerging markets, because of the currency fluctuations that occur uh, and inflationary pressures, you can't get long-term ground leases or revenue leases. So there's a fundamental difference in terms of kind of the operating leverage and the potential risk to that operating leverage as if we were to move into some of those markets. So there's a a bit of a growth answer to your question and where we see kind of the the largest, fastest growing market in the world and what that's going to afford us, as well as us trying to be thoughtful about how we avoid risk. And the other component that we would pull into that risk equation is how we think about leverage. So obviously you start to take cash flows in a different currency, you're borrowing in US dollars, 
you have a mismatch of your liabilities and your revenues that we would be careful about. And we think about it even more broadly if you step out of the international question, we think about it in terms of making sure we're appropriately managing the balance sheet to withstand difficulties in the broader capital markets so we can get hurt by those. So that's sort of the big picture. We're thinking about growth and we're thinking about risk. And as we think about that and where the world is going, we see a huge opportunity in small cells as the wireless carriers start to transition a portion of the next leg of growth, not just solely in macro towers, but also in small cells. And, and Jay, could you maybe just describe for our listeners, why are small cells necessary? Why don't we have small cells today? And why are you so confident that small cells are going to be part of the network infrastructure moving forward? Some people may not even know what 5G is. So maybe you could just start from a technical point of view of how small cells really fit into the picture here. Sure. So the best analogy of macro towers and small cells is that macro towers are like the big overhead lights that you have in a room, and small cells are like lamps. The big overhead lights are nice. They cast a lot of light. They cover a room. They light it up. But if you're reading, oftentimes you want to sit in a chair and turn on the lamp right beside the book that you're reading and direct light to a specific location. Small cells and macro sites work the exact same way. They work together in order to provide a ubiquitous experience to the user. And if you think about locations where there might be a gathering, a significant increase in the amount of traffic, so maybe a shopping area, a stadium, a venue, where people are going to gather in public right-of-ways where traffic is going to be slow and there's going to be lots of traffic, the carriers will use small cells like lamps to direct their wireless signal into relatively small areas and they'll use the macro towers to cover larger geographies. And uh, in essence, uh, from a more technical standpoint, the small cells are offloading traffic off of the macro sites in order to cost-effectively use the macro sites to their fullest extent. So they work together, the carriers need them, and why do they need them? As density of users increases and usage on devices increases, uh, it's like the wireless spectrum that your cell phone uses is almost like water coming out of a garden hose. You can poke a lot of holes in it and water still comes out the end of the hose. But eventually, if you poke enough holes in it, there's no water at the end of the hose. Macro tower site is the same way with wireless spectrum. If you get enough users on a macro site, you can look down at your phone and you still have four or five bars, but you can still get that spinning wheel. And the reason why is because the water's run out. All the other users have used up the wireless spectrum. And a small cell uh, enables the carriers to replicate that same amount of spectrum and direct it into a much smaller area than the macro site does. So they will push traffic off of the macro site onto a small cell site. And as density increases, as usage increases, then the carriers are using those small cells and macro sites to, to solve the problem that none of us want, where we have four bars in the spinning wheel. They're trying to make the device work ubiquitously everywhere that we are. And where we believe the carriers are going, and we've already started to see this in the last several years as we've been deploying small cells, is in the most densely populated areas in the US, the carriers deploy capital to deploy these small cells to cover the need where they see significant minutes of usage by consumers. And they keep the macro sites to provide that larger, broader coverage. So we see a real opportunity here as the carriers continue to invest in 4G and 5G densifying their network for us to be, again, the capital provider of choice 
of owning a shared asset. Uh, small cells, just like macro sites, are a shareable asset. So we're putting the capital out for the first tenant, and then we're seeing additional tenants who use that same capital, and we're able to provide them at a lower cost than the carriers that they built it themselves, and at the same time, drive great returns for our shareholders. And Jay, would you say that we are still in the early days of data and usage of data? It's just not our mobile phones. It's it's the whole internet of things. And it's so many billions of devices that are going to have wireless capability that are going to be connected to the to the internet. And is your view that as it explodes, networks are going to have to keep densifying in order to efficiently use that spectrum to connect billions and billions of more devices? So people are thinking it's just the mobile phone. It's not just the mobile phone that's going to be connected to these networks. I think that's the biggest thing that we'll see as we go from 4G to 5G is the increase in the number of devices. So 4G technologies, one of the limitations uh, in 4G technologies was the number of simultaneously connected devices, which was generally limited to about 2,000 in a geography, either connected to a small cell or connected to a macro site. And one of the things that 5G enables is certainly faster. But I think the real game changer is what you're alluding to in your comments of it increases the number of devices that can be simultaneously connected. So think about the Internet of Things. If we start to connect, and I believe we will, we'll start to connect nearly everything, right? The world has figured out a way to get it into small form factor and has figured out a way to get batteries small with lots of life. But today, those locations or those connections, one of those 2,000 connections, that's a highly valued slot in a wireless network. And so the carriers don't necessarily want a lot of devices connected because there's only 2,000 slots. So they reserve those for, for the phone. And as we transition to 5G and they get the technological advances of being able to increase the number of devices, in some cases it'll be as much as 10,000 times what they could connect in 4G. Did you say 10,000 times? 10,000 times, right? So now they don't need 50, 60, 70 dollars a month of revenue in order to connect device to make it worth giving up that slot. It may be a dollar a month. And if that can incrementally increase their revenues by a connected device and the internet of things, clothing connected, healthcare devices connected, construction as we move into a sort of augmented and virtual reality applications, all of those devices can be connected at very low cost, very small devices, and they're just sending little bits of information. They're not constantly connected like necessarily a phone would be. And each of those devices produces a little bit of revenue. I think the combination of that sort of drives revenue of our customers and therefore continues to drive kind of the densification of the, of the networks, which in ears to our benefit, driving revenues. Jay, maybe we can talk about, and I think it's very interesting, that the barriers to entry in this small cell business, the first of all is it's just putting a cell on a lamppost. You need to have the fiber network that actually connects all these urban areas together. So over the last decade, you've spent over 15 billion US dollars acquiring and building out a fiber network in some critical urban areas. Back in 2017, you actually acquired Light Tower for 7 billion US. That's actually when our main fund came in. I think you raised 3.25 billion and we put up a billion dollars, a billion US dollars, a third of the capital raising we put up that we like so much that what you were doing, thank you very much. Our clients have doubled their money since 2000. 
and 17. So the first one is really the capex, the upfront investment that is required, not just in small cells, but in the whole backbone, the whole fibre side of the business. Obviously, you've got commercial clients on that fibre network, just not small cells. And then the second thing maybe you can talk about is just how long it takes to get permitted to put a small cell on a lamppost or something, who you have to negotiate with. So really just the barriers to entry into this small cell business. Is there really a first mover advantage in local areas here? Yeah, big picture. You know, one of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about is we talk often about we want to grow the dividend 7 to 8% per year, and we want to do that over the long term. And I would hope if we're having this conversation 10 years from now, in 2031, I'm making the case that we can continue to grow the dividend another 7 to 8% per year. So we want to be able to say not only today are we growing the dividend 7 to 8%, but long-term we're thinking about what is it going to take in order for us to sustain that growth over very long periods of time. And as the wireless networks transition towards small cells, we see this as an enormous opportunity. And so we have been investing towards that end, as you referenced, starting back significantly in 2017 when we made the Light Tower acquisition, which gave us significant fiber in the Northeast, uh, mostly in New York and in Boston. And we've invested the vast majority of the capital that we've invested, about $15 billion. Most of that has been invested in the last four years. And that investment has largely gone into the top 25 most populated markets in the U.S. So we've intentionally focused and significantly focused that capital in the top 25 markets because we believe that will have the greatest long-term opportunity. Now, the challenge with doing that is those are also the hardest places to build. They take the longest to get through the zoning and planning permitting process, just like towers do. And there's a component of it that is the challenge of just getting fiber into the ground. And uh, many people may look at it and think, well, there's got to be a glut of fiber. Like, can't you just go and use a couple of strands? These small cell networks require a significant amount of strands of fiber. So when we're putting fiber into the ground, we're oftentimes putting in 7, 800, 1,200 strands of fiber along a fiber run. And then we connect multiple small cells on that fiber. So we were talking earlier about towers, kind of vertical steel. We try to put as many tenants on that vertical steel as we possibly can. Fiber is like a tower laid on its side where we're trying to put as many small cells on that line of fiber as we possibly can. And as you referenced, we end up putting those on lampposts and traffic lights and other things to give them some vertical height to cover an area. So the zoning and planning process though, once you come out of the ground and start to have some visual impact, that zoning and planning process is significant. It often takes us 24 to 36 months to build one of these systems. And once they're built, then just like the towers, there's a real preference for other carriers who want to come to install on that existing network because we've already got the fiber in the ground and we've gone through the zoning and planning process in order to be able to install additional tenants on those lampposts, traffic lights, etc. So there's a speed to market advantage and we've overcome the kind of unknown of how long is this going to take and can it actually be done. And so the business model, very similar to Towers. Now, from a return standpoint, it's interesting. We are building small cells today at about a 6 to 7% initial yield. So you and I mentioned earlier, when we were doing Towers 20 years ago, acquiring those, we were acquiring those at about a 3% initial yield. And today we're building small cells at a 6 to 7% initial yield 
Obviously, our cost of capital is much lower than what it was 20 years ago. Our cost of capital today is probably roughly in line with that sort of 6 to 7% cost or yield that we're getting on the assets that we're putting on the ground. So we're putting assets into the ground today that are basically not accretive to our near-term results, but also not a drag to our results. And we're doing it because of what we see over the long term. And to your question about growth, we've seen a very similar outcome to what we saw in the early days of towers. So we tend to, as a company, we make really small decisions. We talk about it as we shoot a BB, then we shoot a bullet, then we shoot a cannonball. And we make small decisions and we study the outcome of those decisions before we're willing to take the next step. And we've done that with our small cell investments where we go through, make a small investment, which we did years ago. And then as we see the returns play out, co-location, increasing yields on assets, once we saw the business model play out, then we started to do it at scale. Ultimately, the largest acquisition that we did, as you referenced in 2017, of Light Tower, which gave us a lot of fiber in the Northeast, which we think is going to be really compelling over the long term in the Boston, New York markets as small cells are developed there and really drive our return. So it's an initial yield that's approximately in line with our cost of capital. And then we believe that over the long term, we'll see that same operating leverage and scale, and that'll drive those returns on that initial fiber investment that we've made. I would say about that, you know, one of the most important things that I think over time we do is sort of that rigorous analysis of what did we think was going to happen when we put capital into the ground and lease up, and then what actually happened. And then studying what leads to successful investment, both on the tower side and on the small cell side. So as we go back and look at systems that we built four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years ago, even though we have limited numbers of them, they're a great place for us to learn why did this, you know, running the fiber down this particular street, why did that perform better than this other street? And so we've refined that process. Our data analytics have gotten better to show us where we think has the best opportunity for investing that capital today. And then we want to do it at scale. Again, we want to do it enough scale that 10 years from now, we're looking at we've built a large enough platform to continue to advance the growth rate over a longer period of time. And we really believe that's where 5G is growing. It's going to be a core part of the network. And I think by most estimates, today there's about 200,000 macro towers in the U.S. And most estimates are we'll be at least a couple of million small cells over the next decade to two decades. So there's a lot of opportunity to be thoughtful about where we put capital in as long as it clears kind of our rigorous analysis of future demand for the asset. And Jay, there's some views that small cells is going to be more competitive because the big wireless carriers have a lot of fibre. Some of them are building out their own small cells and they're continuing to roll out fibre in dense areas as well. Do you see the risk of sort of overbuilding by the major wireless carriers or do you think this sort of local barriers to entry and speed to market they will just optimize that if you're not in areas, they'll do it themselves. But if you've got the permitting, they will be logical and do it with you. So do you think they will do the most economic, rational decision? I think they will be rational. They've shown themselves to be rational for a long period of time. And we have both, you have a lower cost of provision of the network by using a shared model and you get speed. And both of those are critical to their success. So I think we're offering them two things that are sort of critical and core to their business. And I think that will ultimately rule the day. would also say that part of the reason why you see 
the large carriers self-performing small cells is because we're not willing to build them everywhere. And as I referenced before, there are locations where they may or may not get multiple carriers on them. We're choosing the places, portions of cities, neighborhoods, locations where we believe it has the greatest opportunity for upside. And there are places where we know the carriers are going, we have the opportunity to potentially build small cells for them, but they really don't pass our opportunity cost, if you will. And so we choose to invest our capital in other locations. And so the carriers need to self-perform because there's not a shared solution. We have seen them continue to be rational in the years that we've been in the business where it just doesn't make economic sense for them to overbuild and therefore they they haven't. And I don't think anything will change on that front. Jay, back in 2020, and I remember this very well, you had one of the very well-known large activists come onto your register and put out a very public proposal to effectively cut all your fibre investment, really to abandon your small cell strategy and effectively to up your dividend rate to really just milk your macro tower business. What were the lessons when an activist approaches and just challenges the business model and comes up with a, I would argue, a simplistic but quite compelling, let's just up the dividend here? Yeah, so a couple of things. One, uh, do appreciate the conversation and the dialogue that we have with shareholders and and you and the firm have been terrific at that over the years of really being thoughtful as owners. And I think across the, the big picture of engaging with an activist and with any shareholders is we're stewards of other people's capital. I probably say this every day that I'm in the office, I'm talking about this with our folks. We're stewards of other people's capital. And just as you are, Hamish, and we have to think like that. It's not our money, it's shareholders' money. And we have a responsibility to steward that resource and that capital and get the greatest return on a risk-adjusted basis that we possibly could. So I think anytime a shareholder articulates a view, whether it agrees with the strategic view of the firm or it disagrees, I think you're wise to listen and give full consideration to our perspective. In this case, we had a disagreement around what the opportunity was in small cells and fiber, and then, as you referenced, kind of the the dividend payout percentage. And we had studied and continue to study carefully kind of the returns of the business and talk about it openly with shareholders. So there was a two-prong approach. One was to listen and to think, and as a board, to consider another perspective, and one that we had undertaken ourselves of, you know, are the returns appropriate to continue to invest the capital there Are we seeing signs that our underlying thesis was accurate and proving to ourselves once again that that we were headed down kind of the right path? We did that. And then the other thing that we did was engage with shareholders around that, of having the conversation with them. And we were, our shareholders really understood why they were invested in Crown Castle, why we were investing in small cells. And there was a real core understanding of what the opportunity in the business was. And there was also some good feedback of from yourself and others who said, you know, here's some interesting data points that if you gave us, you know, maybe a couple extra data points, this would help us form our view around the business and inform other shareholders as to how the business was performing. And so we provided some additional disclosure, detailed disclosure, and we'll be actually updating it here in the the second quarter as we give our second quarter results for 2021 of giving an update on, on these specific markets, a deep dive on the markets. And so I think it's a First part of it is, you know, a dialogue with shareholders, a thoughtful dialogue with shareholders, and then as stewards of the capital, 
to be really thoughtful and to check assumptions and make sure we haven't missed something. On the dividend point, we're paying out about 80% of the cash flow in the business and have historically. Over the last seven years, we've been at that kind of payout ratio. And we think that's a sustainable amount of dividend relative to the cash flows, and we grow the dividend in line with the cash flows. And so the idea of using every dollar of cash flow and not holding any back for sort of necessity of, of capital expenditures or a bump in the market kind of violates our risk profile conversation that I had earlier, where I think it's appropriate, given the stability of the business, for us to have a very high relative payout ratio compared to many companies of about 80%, and then to grow that in line with the growth in the business. So ultimately, came out basically where we've been of being continuing to invest in the business in measured ways, continuing to do kind of the rigorous analysis around is the capital getting the right returns, and then returning to shareholders a um, uh, about 80% of the cash flow. And I, I think those two things honestly work together. I mean, I like to, I like to say to people that, that managers make better decisions when resources are scarce. And part of the reason why we pay out 80% of the cash flow in the business and then that other portion is spoken for in terms of the capital is we need to come to shareholders like yourselves and articulate why these investments make sense because we're raising you know, oftentimes additional debt, occasionally additional equity to make these investments in small cells. I think that's really good discipline on managers and a good place to be. So we'll return all the cash flow that's produced by the business as it is currently. And to the extent that we see opportunities for investment, then we come back to uh, stakeholders, both debt holders and equity holders, articulate what the opportunity is, why we see it as a good investment, and then raise capital in line with those opportunities. But the capital that's produced by previously funded capital, that goes back to shareholders. Well, thank you for that, Jay. There is sort of discussion and maybe Elon Musk talking about his low orbit satellites and rolling out and spending, I don't know, 17 billion or whatever the number is, whether that's a real number or not a real number is always hard to tell with Elon. How concerned are you that there could be a paradigm shift in technology that's going to do away with your sort of infrastructure that is dependent really on fibre networks connecting either towers or, or small cells and somehow it's going to be a satellite-based technology or something in the, in the future. Do you see that as a potential real threat to your infrastructure model or is that really in sort of emerging markets and non-dense areas of the world that doesn't have fibre? How do you assess the sort of change in technology sort of risk to your business? I don't see it as a risk at all. The low orbit satellites or distant orbit satellites, they really don't provide the connectivity speeds that we all enjoy by terrestrial towers. It's purely just a distance thing on some level. So the speed at which we're able to move traffic in the places where we own towers and small cells in dense urban areas, I really don't see satellites, either low orbit or otherwise, as an easy substitute. Now, in places, I think there are two applications where it's really interesting. In more rural locations, it just doesn't make sense to build the kind of infrastructure that we own. There's not enough density of population, so towers and small cells just don't make sense. There's no economic return. And those low-orbit satellites have pretty compelling opportunities where they're moving from copper wire data traffic to now moving to low-orbit satellites. So it's really interesting there. I also think it's interesting in disaster recovery scenarios where, you know, along uh, as we have hurricanes here in the U.S. along the Gulf Coast and some of the islands off the uh, southeastern 
portion of the U.S., low-orbit satellites can provide a pretty compelling disaster relief element, but as a base infrastructure, it's just too slow, and it's just never going to close that distance in terms of speed that we see. So it's something I watch, but certainly not concerned about it as a real risk to the business. Well, we won't be losing a lot of sleep over that particular risk, so thank you. But I do think the use cases for it are important for society, as you've just pointed out, Jay. If we think out maybe 20 years or 10 years into the future, and as demand for data continues to explode, and people want to get closer to the providers of technology, do you think there are other opportunities that you could leverage your fiber and your infrastructure and your real estate? Is there other uses for your fiber and your real estate that you have? We think so. Early days on that front, and today there's not much revenue, nor is it kind of in 2021, 2022. We don't see it that near term. But longer term, as data traffic increases, it's really expensive to move traffic over long distances, data traffic, and it reduces speed. So we think that computing power will be moved to the very edge of the network, close to the consumer, for things like autonomous cars, applications that are using augmented reality and virtual reality, where people are not going to want to move the bulk of the traffic all the way back through the network and then back again to the user. And so they'll put computing power at the very edge of the network. And if you think about the infrastructure that we own, we are by definition the edge. We're the last wireless link, if you will. We're wired, uh, fiber to our towers and then fiber to our small cells. And then from that point, it then goes to the user wirelessly. That's the edge of the network. And oftentimes we're inside of a half a mile in almost all cases, and oftentimes within two to 300 meters of a user. So we have really strategic assets for where we think the world is going in terms of compute power at the edge of the network and lowering the cost of the network. So the opportunities there are probably the development of a shared model, potentially, where we own many data centers, if you will, where there's connectivity of users, uh, companies that are providing high amounts of data traffic. It could be autonomous car companies. It could also be things like Netflix, who are providing significant amounts of data traffic to a user. And rather than pushing that all the way through the system, they move it to the edge. And, um, and can I just ask, when you say yeah. owning mini data centers, you mean the physical data centers and the air conditioning, they would own the racks inside the data centers? Correct. We would basically provide a place for them to co-locate, just like we do the tower. So we own the, the shareable portion and they bring their cards and racks and connect into the system there. So it could be a leasing model, just like it is on towers. And we've got land, we've got power, and we've got connectivity. And those are key to those edge opportunities. Well, Jay, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there. I could keep asking you questions. I love the business. I just love the long-term nature of what you're doing and the quality of the business. And you're really sitting at the intersection of what's happening in the world and providing infrastructure for it. And on behalf of all our investors, thank you for being you know, those first-class custodians of their capital and also thinking very long-term. You know, it, it's the long-term thinking that we love it at Magellan. And, and I'm looking forward to catching up. When we get to travel again uh, from Australia, we're still locked down in this country. But when we are, I'll come to Texas and we'll catch up. That's great. Hamish, thanks so much for having me today and uh, really appreciate the support. And 
as always, I appreciate the conversation and the perspective. And uh, we're stewarding yours and all of your customers' capital and honored that you've given us the privilege of doing that and always welcome your perspective and insights on how we can do it better. So thanks for the time and enjoyed the conversation. A pleasure. That was Hamish Douglas, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Magellan, talking to Jay Brown, CEO of Crown Castle. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast, where you can also sign up to receive our regular investment insights program. Thanks for listening.